Well, I want to share with you two quick things before we get to the message. First is the obvious one. It is Communion Sunday. Um, if you desire to participate in our communion service, and it is your first time partaking this ordinance with us, we ask that you would talk to our elder Bob um, right after service. Uh, we would like to extend our right hand of fellowship to you by sharing with you the biblical reasons that are connected, biblical principles that are connected to communion. We'd also like to hear your testimony. Communion is for believers, and we want to uh, extend our right hand of fellowship to all fellow believers in the Lord. Well, that's our first announcement. Second thing I want to share is, um, you know, last week we, I had a little blurb before our, mes- our message about our retreat prices might be going up because our subsidizing of the, um, all our participants will be lowered, resulting in the raising of the fees, especially for the married families. The way the uh, rooms are set up, there are two twin beds per room. So it costs the church quite an amount to subsidize the families. Well, um, Bob and I and the leaders met this week, the retreat organizers, and we hammered out the numbers. And our decision has, was, our decision is to lower our prices. Um, to lower the prices. It, I think um, reflects the heart of the leadership. Reflects Bob's heart and my heart. Our view towards ministry. That money... It's just money, right? Money is a tool to shepherd people, to use for God's kingdom, to invest in people's lives. And so we have no problem using church funds so that it will allow you to come to the retreat to hear God's word taught on evangelism and missions. It reflects our view towards the church, our view towards the members, that each of you is more important than our bottom line financially. And finally, it reflects our view towards our retreats. How important we, we believe retreats are in the life of the church. Um, we've always had great attendance at our retreats. Uh, we want that to continue. We believe in our retreats. It is an extension of our Sunday services. Literally, it's five Sunday services in the weekend. You know, five sermons. Simplicity of prayer and fellowship of coming together and worshiping the Lord, praying for one another. We believe in those disciplines because they are based in the Scriptures. And God has um, blessed us tremendously, and we don't want anyone to miss out on that because of money. So the fees are $120 for full-time college students, 140 for singles, and 150 for each married person. Right. That's a drastic cut in the fees. Now, if you're late in registration, there's no mercy. Right? <laughs> it goes back to, it goes up quite a bit. But for early registration, those are the fees. We ask that you'd all um, prioritize this, this retreat. Again, as our elder Bob shared, it is crucial for the whole year because Pastor John should be coming and speaking on evangelism and missions, and that's our whole theme. So you want to just start with us. Start the first quarter. If I can extend this fourth illustration a little bit, we want to start well. Not like the Lakers and wake up in the fourth quarter. We want to, out of the gates, start well with the retreat. Well, let's get to our message for this morning. If you will turn with me to John chapter 7, open your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John. <clears throat> it is our final message on, on this chapter. <clears throat> We've been studying verse by verse through this gospel. 
And this week, I was thinking about what our goal, what our goals are in studying this book. As a Christian, as a student of the Word, as a pastor of our church, for you guys, coming week, week after week, sitting in services, uh, what are our goals in our weekly study of the Gospel of John? Well, the first goal is that we are seeking to accurately know and understand the absolute beauty and glory of Christ. That is our foremost goal, is it not? We want to know accurately, understand biblically the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ. This is our first and foremost aim. We want to see firsthand His holiness and righteousness as revealed in the Word of God. We want to together as a body marvel at His meekness at His gentleness and humility. And we want to, as a corporate body, weep joyful tears over His amazing sacrifice. We are coming together verse by verse, every week, because we want to personally comprehend these truths and make sure that our knowledge of Christ is based solely on the Word of God. Solely on the Word of God. Now, if there is any time when our doctrine of Christ is most threatened... It is during Christmas. This season when we celebrate the birth of Christ presents to the believers the greatest challenge in keeping a right view of our Lord. Because it is during this time with all those Christmas carols and those Christmas TV specials Hallmark presents on Channel 2. All those Christmas cards and movies. The world offers their countless distorted versions of Christ and Christmas. And so of all, all during the season, this utmost during Christmas season, it is imperative that believers, that Christians, that us, that our theology, our understanding of Christ is formed solely by the Bible's testimony on the person of Jesus Christ. And that's our first and foremost goal. At the end of our several year study of the Gospel of John, if we can say, you know what, I understand Christ better. I, I understand, I know Him. I know His character. I know His deity, His righteousness in a greater way than when I started, that we've accomplished our first goal. What is the second goal of our verse-by-verse study? <clears throat> it is to this end, that our study of the Gospel might cause us to cherish Christ more, to love Him more. That is, our, that is my purpose. It's not an academic study. It is not to grow in knowledge or know trivial facts, understand some obtuse, interesting issues in the Christian faith. No. As we observe firsthand the glory of Christ in John's account, as we behold the absolute beauty and the holiness of His character and life, it is our prayer that God might instill in our hearts a greater love and adoration of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, John, as we studied when we started this uh, study, John was our Lord's beloved disciple. Of all disciples, John had a, a, a specific, unique relationship with the Lord. John is called a beloved disciple, and John, in return, had a special love for Christ. And so his gospel is unique in the sense that it is a labor of love. You can see in his pages, John, how he repeats again the name of Jesus 
more than any other gospel writers, he repeats the name of Jesus because that name is sweet to his ears. It rings true in his heart. So as we come together and read John's account of the Lord, may we feel the heat of John's love for Christ. May we be warmed by his intense affection for the Lord. And may we grow in love for him as well, spurned by his testimony. And the final goal for our study is to see mankind in light of the glory of Christ. That disturbing angle of our goal Our Lord is the standard of righteousness and in His incarnation we see that all men, even the most esteemed men, even the most supposed religious men are dwarfed by the complete purity of Christ. Week in and week out, our study has affirmed nothing but this truth, the desperate wickedness of the human heart. It has been unnerving and uncomfortable at times. But we must not turn away from this ugliness, from the ugliness of man's sinfulness. We must glare carefully at this truth of man's utter depravity when compared to the utter righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is amazing to me is that we've seen all three of these things in chapter 7. We've seen all three of this in just this chapter 7. There is a strange mingling of the lights and shadows in this chapter. In these pages, we've seen the beauty of Christ. You know, I think so, right? Brothers and sisters, have we not grown in our appreciation, our love, our sheer valuing of Christ in our past few studies? I mean, just last week, for me, looking at our Lord's courage, I don't know why, but I never never saw that before. I I knew our Lord was courageous. I knew He was bold. But seeing Him calling the religious leaders out and telling them, you do not know Him. I am from the Father. I am from God. And you have no relationship with Him. Behind enemy lines. In in their sphere of authority for Him to do that. It just causes me to grow in in my admiration of Him. His unyielding commitment to do the Father's will is in one word, awesome. At the same time, we have seen the utter evil of man-made religion. How false religion is produced and produces pride and self-righteousness. That the closest ally of false religion is legalism. And at the core, at the core of false religion, what do we find? Our Lord exposes that for us. In all false religion, we find hypocrisy. And that all of it is motivated by the basis of human characteristics of envy, jealousy, love of power, love of money. We've seen all of that just in this one chapter. Now, if you haven't been with us for the past few weeks or missed one or two sessions... Let me outline to you briefly the second half of this chapter. Starting in verse 16, John records for us our Lord's dialogue with the crowds, the pilgrims who have gathered from near and far to attend this feast. His dialogue with the Jerusalemites, the citizens of Jerusalem. His dialogue with the Pharisees even. Let me just outline um, this section of of John's Gospel. And I want to just use four words. Four words that I'll maybe help you to remember 
this section. The first word is authority. Authority, verses 16 through 20. The rabbis, the Pharisees were questioning, where did this man get this teaching? He's not from one of our authorized rabbinical schools. What is the source of his instruction? He's making it up. He's winging it. He's doing it off the cuff. And our Lord says, my authority is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And he validates himself with the authority of God. If anyone desires to do God's will, if anyone has a heart seeking to obey any portion of the scriptures, you Pharisees claim to know the Old Testament. If you had a heart, a desire to obey the law of Moses, you will know, you would know that my teaching comes from God the Father. You will sense the the essence of truth in what I'm saying. That the source is not from me, but from the Father. The first word is authority. The second word is Sabbath. Sabbath, verses 21 through 24. The Pharisees, when they last saw Jesus, was in the Feast of Passover. And they were still ranting and raving over the miracle that Christ performed on that Sabbath. When He healed an invalid, paralyzed for 38 years, and He had the audacity to heal him on the Sabbath. And they were still seething in anger. I mean, almost eight months later, and they're still angry, wanting to kill Him because He would heal, work on the Sabbath. And Christ says in verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. You're all lawbreakers. If your premise is all lawbreakers must be executed, well, well, take a look at the man in the mirror. Look at all of you guys. You guys are all lawbreakers. You just start with yourselves. Not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? They accuse him. It's a personal attack. You are demon-possessed. They have no biblical reasoning. They have no scriptural basis. All they can resort to is throwing personal ad hominem attacks. You are demon-possessed. And our Lord says, okay, let's reason together. According to your own tradition, your own practices, you believe in circumcision and Sabbath. And when the eighth day falls on the Sabbath, the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel do work. They circumcise the child. Well, if it's okay in your paradigm to work on the Sabbath and circumcising a boy, then why is it wrong for me to heal a whole man and restore his body completely on the Sabbath? He shows their utter inconsistency in their own understanding of the law. They don't even know the scriptures. They have no reasoning and they have no defense. I mean, they, they, they are at a loss for words because of Christ's impeccable logic. The second word is Sabbath. The third word is conclusion. Right? This is the taking off the jacket by our Lord. The conclusion. Our Lord says, period. These are terrifying words. Heartbreaking words. Imagine if Christ said this of you. Steeped in religion. Reared up in religion. Believing this is the truth. And the Lord Himself comes and says, You do not know Him. I know Him. You have no relationship with God. What terrifying words. Our Lord 
that word, that section is conclusion. This is the, this is the reason you hate me. Because you do not know him. In fact, you're his enemies. Now the final word that summarizes our final passage for this morning is a word that you would not expect. In fact, I love the drama of the Gospels. The chapter ends in an unexpected note. You know, one might expect John to end with this section. You don't know God and I'm out of here. In a little while, I'm going to God and you cannot come. And period, they're angry at him. They're attempting to arrest and kill him. and They're unsuccessful because it is not God's time. Or you expect our Lord to get angry. Just utterly indignant, righteous anger at their hypocrisy. At their entrenched hypocrisy. Their, their commitment to do, to go against the will of God. And you expect, expect him to repeat what he did in John chapter 2. What did he do in John chapter 2? He cleansed the temple. Right? Just like Isaiah in chapter 1. Your new moon festivals, your Sabbaths, your feasts, they're an offense to me. And you would expect our Lord to get out His whips of cords and lash out at the participants and expel them from the temple of God. You expect either or, right? But our Lord does neither. He does something that is so... And I... I I spent like five minutes looking, looking for a word that would describe this. And the best I came up with is tremendous. I've got to get a new thesaurus here. But, I mean, it's so, I don't want to say I'm awesome so, you know, so often, but it is awesome. It warrants our careful attention. What is the final word that describes this final section? Is invitation. Verses 37 through 52, particularly verses 37 and 38. What does our Lord do? The leaders of Israel, the Jerusalemites, the crowd, they're against Him, they're criticizing Him, they're accusing Him of being demon-possessed. Our Lord turns to them and He invites them. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within Him. You're reading your Bibles. You must know this by now that some words are in red indicating that these are the words of Christ. Well, some believe that some words of Christ, like these words, ought to be written with gold because they are so precious to the believer. They are so precious to Christians that God would face such a contentious crowd instead of judging criticizing, rebuking them, his final statements to them is one of gracious invitation. Hendrickson says, quote, Jesus has been rejected and condemned by the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, chapter 5, abandoned by the multitude in Galilee, chapter 6, and now the crowd in Jerusalem seeks to lay hands on him, 730, not to mention the religious leaders, 732. In spite of this large-scale rejection, Jesus still offers to those who will hear and receive it the gift of eternal life. What a Savior! End quote. What a gracious invitation of our Lord. He's extending it to His most bitter enemies. Well, as we go to the text, we need to do 
one more thing for us to rightly understand this text. Now, we saw last week that our Lord is teaching during the Feast of Tabernacles, verse 14, now until halfway through the feast, did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. Began to teach. It's a seven-day feast during the intertestamental period. The leaders added one extra day. Now it was an eight-day feast. So in verse 14, it is the fourth day, the middle of the feast. In verse 37, we find that it is now the last and greatest day of the feast. Four days has passed since verse 14. Let me just set up this feast one more time. The Feast of Tabernacles was not just any feast. It was... They considered it the feast. It was by far the most festive and joyous of occasions for two reasons. First reason, it was a harvest feast. It was held in September slash October. It was the last of the three Jewish feasts. It was that great feast when the harvest was finally gathered in. And Exodus 23.16 calls it the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. And all the laborers would come out from the field. So it was a, a time of great joy and rejoicing and of singing. They would actually light four large candelabras that would light, illuminate the night sky in Jerusalem near, near the temple. And men would gather to drink and dance around this, uh, the, these candles. It was an extravaganza that was celebrated because the harvest was in, their work was done, and God has been faithful. Secondly, it was a memorial feast. Memorial feast. The prescriptions on how to conduct this feast was given in Leviticus 23. Moses said that they are to live in tents made of trees and branches of palm trees for the seven days of the feast. They are to rest from all work on the first and eighth days. The priest offered sacrifices and each day, except for the eighth, beginning with the thirteen bulls and other animals on the first day, they would diminish by one bull each day until on the seventh day, seven bulls, the complete number, were offered. And actually on the eighth day, there was a solemn convocation, a solemn assembly, where one bull, one ram, and seven lambs were offered. During this week, in the temple, on the altar, 189 animals were sacrificed during this feast. What is the purpose? To remember God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Leviticus 23, 42-43. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths. So your descendants will know that I, the Israelites, live in booths. When I brought them out of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So this feast was to commemorate and be a memorial to their wandering in the wilderness and how God brought them out of their bondage to the land of Canaan, to the land of to the promised land. It is in this last day of the feast that our Lord stood up. Now this is unique in the Western culture. We stand up to teach, sit down when we're done, and. The Jewish um, um, culture, you 
stood up when you were done. You would sit down to teach. When, it, when the Sermon on the Mount, Christ went up to the mountain and he sat down and everybody was quiet. And the disciples gathered around him. He sat down, he's going to teach. Well, our Lord does something completely opposite. For dramatic effect, in the last day he stands up and he crotso. Same word as uh, the last passage. He lifts up his voice. He literally screams this out. And he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, we've got to ask ourselves, right? A good Bible student is always asking questions. What is our Lord referring to? Uh, it's a feast of tabernacles. Why is he standing up and talking about being thirsty and drinking water? Now, if this statement sounds familiar, he said this something very similar in John chapter 4. And in that context, you knew exactly what he was referring to, right? He was in Samaria. He was thirsty. There was a well. There was a woman getting water. And he asked her for a drink. And so the context, I mean, directly led to this statement. If anyone is thirsty, drink from me. You have a river of life river of life flowing from within you. Now, in this context, what is our Lord referring to? A majority of commentators believe that our Lord is referring to a particular ritual that was performed by the priests during this feast. Every day, except for the eighth day, the priests would go outside the city walls, to the Kidron Valley, to the pole of Shiloam. And what is amazing that Stern and I, we've been there. We were there at Kidron Valley. The pool is still there. The water is still springing forth in that same place as in the time of Christ. The, the priest would fill a pitcher of, a gold pitcher of water. And they would bring it out. And as they're coming in, they would worship and sing Psalm 113 and 114. As they would come into the altar, the timing would be perfect where everyone would stop and the priest would pour out the water over the altar to signify Israel's gratitude for the rain that had been produced for the harvest. And as they were pouring out the water, they would pray for rain in the next year. This was done every day during the feast except for the last day. On the last day, the water wasn't drawn. And so our Lord stands up and says, we're not drawing water today. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. A majority of our commentators believe that this is what our Lord is referring to. Now, John doesn't give us any more information on the historical scene. What is really going on behind the scenes? So we can't be dogmatic. But I believe that Jesus is referring to something else. That he's not... I don't think so. I don't think he's referring to this ritual of the gold pitcher of water and pouring it on the altar. I believe he's referring back to the Old Testament. Now, why do I say that? The context. The context of John. In John chapter 6, our Lord fed the masses with bread. And he said, you're looking for me not because you want to follow me, but because you had your loaves and had your fill. 
And the crowd respond, Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. He gave them bread to eat. Our Lord said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who gave you bread, but it is my Father who gives you true bread. And they said, Sir, give us this true bread. We're hungry. We don't, we don't want to hunger anymore. And Christ says, I am the bread of life. That's the context. It just happened in John chapter 6. In John chapter 7, John is pointing that out. And this time it's not bread. This time it's water. It's water. That's amazing. You go back to the Old Testament and there are two types of prophecies. Two types. One type is verbal prophecies. This is obvious, right? Isaiah 7, Isaiah 53, Genesis 3.15, Psalm 22. These are uh, revelatory, vocal, communicated, articulated prophecies towards Christ. The second kind of prophecy is the pictorial type. Actually also called a, a Old Testament type of Christ. Now, what are some Old Testament types of Christ? Old Testament pictorial prophecies in the Old Testament. Right? Um, Jonah is one. I remember as Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days, son of man, we belly of the earth for three days. What about the Passover lamb? That's a picture of Christ. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes for the sins of the world. Another one is the manna we just talked about in John 6. The one that I believe our Lord is pointing to is the one in Numbers 20, verses 2 through 11. If you will turn with me to the Old Testament, way back there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, full book of the Law of Moses. I believe our Lord is referring to this passage. Why? Because Numbers records the Israelites wandering in the wilderness of Paran for 38 years. They spent this whole week living in tents, reading the law of God, remembering how their forefathers were, were wandering in the desert. And the key event in the wilderness, I mean the key event that caused the servant of God, there was no prophet ever like Moses who spoke to God face to face that prevented him from entering the promised land, was this key event when Moses struck this rock twice and it gave forth water. That's recorded in Numbers 20, 2-11. Again, they're in the wilderness of Paran. It's a desolate place. It is hot. It is dry. And in the summertime, if there's any one commodity that's of, of, of... of most importance, it is water. And there was a great problem. Verse 2, there was no water for the community. And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? They're like, man, we should have died then. Why didn't we die when God struck the Israelites because they didn't believe in God's promises in entering Canaan? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place that has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates? There is no water to drink. 
Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff. And you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock. He doesn't say, Pick a rock, any rock. No, he says, He points out, Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Well, Moses in his anger at the rebellion, strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. But still, in God's graciousness, water gushed out, verse 11, and the community and their livestock drank. This rock is the type of Christ in the Old Testament. How do we know? Because that's what Christ is saying here in John chapter 7. The rock is the shadow. And Jesus is the reality. Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. All baptized, talking about the Israelites, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, meaning food given from heaven, manna. They all drank the same spiritual drink, water came, brought from God. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And Paul says, and that rock was Christ. Our Lord is standing up and He's crying out. You've been reading the law this whole week. You've been studying it, talking about it, dialoguing back and forth, living in tents, talking about the wilderness experience and how miraculously God provided water for the people of Israel. He stands out. He stands up and He cries out, I am the rock. Come to Me and you will no longer thirst. He is the true water, the living water, that whoever drinks from Him, streams of living water will flow from Him. Now let's break this, these two verses apart and look at four aspects of, of these two verses. First of all, the condition. The condition. Our Lord says, if any man thirsts, if anyone thirsts, physical thirst is the most powerful drive known to man. We can go without food for weeks at a time. The sex drive even can be contained. But one thing you cannot leave unsatisfied is thirst. It becomes a driving demon that takes over the whole of your life. It makes you think of nothing else but satisfying your thirst. And this is what our Lord is alluding to. And He is talking not about physical thirst, but the spiritual thirst that God gives to man. It means anxiety of soul. It means conviction of sin. It is that earnest desire for pardon. That, that drive in a man so loaded with sin that he or she seeks peace with God. It is talking about that kind of desperation where a man is so aware of his own sins that he or she desperately, earnestly seeks to be absolved of the guilt of one's sins. It is this mindset that our Lord is talking about. This raw, inconsolable desperation of a man seeking atonement for his many sins. And yet, sad to say, 
The sad truth is that such thirst is known by only very few people. Everyone ought to feel and have this thirst. The sad truth is most deny it. Drowning themselves in more sin, more distractions, more worldly living. Very few acknowledge and are aware of this thirst. Many who thirst, they thirst after everything but salvation. Thirst after money, after pleasure, after honor, power, self-indulgence. These are the things which they crave, but not Christ. Now there is no clearer proof of the fall of man, the utter corruption of the human nature, and the careless indifference that many people, most people have about their souls. No wonder the Bible says that the natural man is blind, is asleep, he is dead. That is why in Matthew 5, 6, our Lord said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Righteousness not in, within themselves. You can't produce your own food. You can't produce your own water. You know that water and food is outside of yourself. So Christ, likewise, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, knowing that they are not righteous. They seek after, they're earnest, they're desperate. Blessed are they, because when you have that kind of heart, you will be satisfied, you will be filled. And brothers and sisters, this is the first step to all true Christianity. Is it not? This is the first step. I was getting a haircut this week. You know, Mike gives me my haircut usually, but this week I went to my other barber, the other barber. Um, I was cutting my hair and I was talking about things. Oh, pastor, what are you? He goes to church. He's a professing believer. I went, how did you become a believer? And his response was, I have no idea. I didn't want to confront him because he's cutting my hair. (laughs) I've learned that over the years. You don't... You don't do that with a man with clippers. But well, what do you mean? You don't, he has no idea. It just happened. Well, it just doesn't happen. The first step to true Christianity is a glaring awareness of one's own depravity and that righteousness is outside of us. The very first step towards heaven is to be thoroughly convinced that we deserve hell. So, when I see this desperation in a person, that's a good sign. Right? In fact, it is a symptom of spiritual life. Bob was telling me, was counseling a person a few weeks ago, and the person was just in agony, questioning the person's own salvation, the genuineness of true fruit. And Bob said then, well, what are we going to talk about? Let's go home. If you're not a Christian, nothing else to talk about. Let's, let's go home. And he's like, no. Right? And Bob said, then that's a sign of genuine Christianity. That's the most encouraging thing. When a person works out his or her salvation with fear and trembling, that is a sign of genuine salvation. Now, when a person is carefree, is laid back, takes his or her spiritual life with ease, that's a blinking neon sign that that person of all should be concerned. Our Lord says, if anyone has this spiritual desperation. Now notice, he's not speaking in a a prison. He's not speaking in a brothel. 
He's speaking in a, in a temple where people are immersed in religious activity. They see themselves as righteous. But he says, anyone who understands that this is not the will of God, anyone who is thirsty, secondly, second aspect, he calls them the call. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He invites people to himself. Our Lord declares that he is the true fountain of life. That he is the supplier of all spiritual needs. That he is the one who satisfies man's deepest spiritual need. What is that? It is the forgiveness of sin. He invites all who feel the burden of sin, the heavy burden, to come to him. And then he will lift that burden as that pilgrim In Pilgrim's Progress, you will remove that burden from anyone who will come to him. That word come is a simple word in the English language. I mean, one of the first words that a child learns, come. But it signifies so much. It is our Lord's way of describing again, we talked about this a few months ago, describing what faith is. Faith, in a way, is intangible. It's amorphous. It's hard to get an understanding on. So our Lord uses various words to describe the present, active nature of faith. It is beholding Christ. It is abiding in the vine. It is looking to Christ. It is eating Him. And here He uses two words. It is coming to Christ. It is drinking from Him. Emphasizing that active, present nature of faith. It is, faith is not inactive. It is not passive. But it is something that is vibrant. That is not static. It is dynamic. It is reaching out to appropriate and make the object of faith one's own. Any man is thirsty, come to me and drink. The next word is, next aspect is the promise. There are only three, excuse me, I I said four. There are only three. Verse 38, the promise is this, whoever believes in me as the scripture says, has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Out of his midst or out of his heart, anyone who trusts in Christ from that person will be like a running fountain The rivers is used to express abundance or a full supply. It's living water. It's alive. It gives life. Not just to the person, but to the people that are around the person. Where he becomes a source, a means of salvation, a means of sustenance. That by his life and testimony, others may come and drink and be satisfied. Now in verse 39, John comments on this statement. He's explaining that our Lord was referring to the giving of the Holy Spirit after, the, after His ascension to glory. He is, he is testifying that Christ made this prophecy in His last Feast of Tabernacles. John is saying, I have seen it. I have experienced the Holy Spirit. The living water is in me now, overflowing, and testifies the truthfulness of Christ's claim. Well, let's look again 
to the responses of the crowd, the Jerusalemites, the Pharisees, there are again the same twofold division among his hearers. On the one hand, there's a group that says, in a way, this is really the prophet. They're close, but others are, are right. This is the Messiah. There are some in the crowd who, who now believe, who are thirsty, who are coming to Christ and trusting in Him. And yet, another group are clinging to that same old myth, that same old folktale, is the Messiah to come from Galilee. Has not the Scripture said that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem? The village where David was at, so there was a division among the people over him. There was this division. There were some responded with faith, some rejected him. But there was also a kind of strange, odd response among his enemies. The leaders wanted to arrest Christ, so they sent temple guards to arrest him, verses 44 through 46. When they came back, they didn't bring Christ. The, the officers asked, the, the, the Pharisees asked them, why didn't you bring Christ? But Jesus, the officers answered, it's amazing, no man ever spoke like this man. I mean, it's almost humorous. I mean, can you imagine the, the anger of these uh, chief priests and Pharisees? Where is he? We sent you out like a block's distance to arrest Jesus. Why have you come empty-handed? The Pharisees asked, asked him, Are you led astray as well? Their answer is, You know, we don't know what, what happened. We're standing there ready to arrest him. And we're just listening to what he was saying. And somehow it got through to us. We, we became so wrapped up in his teaching. That we forgot what, what we set out to do. We, no one ever spoke like this man. How could we arrest him? And they came back empty-handed. They questioned the Pharisees. Has any of the Pharisees or the authorities believed in him? Well, Nicodemus stands out. He was that he came to Jesus at night in John 3. Here in John 7, he makes some kind of um, stand for Christ. He makes some kind of stand. Does our law judge a man, verse 50, without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? We'll learn later in John 19 how he comes completely around where he publicly aligns himself with Christ by claiming the body of Christ with Joseph of Arimathea. Well, they note that sarcastic response, are you from Galilee too? They're still holding to that notion that no prophet is to rise from Galilee. Well, to close our time, I thought about what application, what our closing thoughts might be most appropriate as we end John chapter 7. I just have one. To me, as I conclude this chapter, only one. And so many stand out. We've gone through this in our past studies. But brothers and sisters, really just one truth stands out over them all. It is our Lord's desire for all men to be saved. Our Lord's invitation. If we didn't look at the context, it wouldn't stand out. But in light of the historical context, it is amazing that our Lord will turn to those who want nothing better than for Him to be, to be murdered. That He will turn to them, the crowds who are hard-hearted, 
the Jerusalemites who accused him of being demon possessed that he would turn to them and invite them to drink from him to believe on him that they might have eternal life I think it encourages us um, in our prayer life as we pray for the lost maybe it is our hope my hope that you would go to John 7 and consider the example of Christ inviting lost sinners. And may that stir you to pray a little longer, pray with greater zeal and greater passion, knowing that that's the heart of Christ, heart of the Lord. Even the most desperate sinner who, who is rebelling against Christ and the things of the Lord, our Lord's heart is that they might be saved. Secondly, um, they might do away with our self-righteousness as we condemn the sins of others, sins of this world, but ultimately knowing, as Christ did, that what they need is salvation. They don't need a, a moral reformation. They don't need behavior modification. They don't need to change their ways. What they need is to trust in Christ. Help us to do away with our self-righteousness and humbly, alongside Christ, under Christ, invite people to come and trust in Christ as well. And perhaps it is our hope that it will spur us on to indiscriminate gospel preaching. I mean, look at this text. If anyone thirsts, an offer to the whole world. If any man has a spiritual thirst, come to Christ. May, it, may that be our hearts. Indiscriminate preaching of the gospel to anyone who has the heart they used to hear. Let's pray. Our Father, it is our prayer that you would indeed cause us to love you more, cherish Christ in a greater way, to adore you and, and hold on to you closer, tighter. Lord, such love and devotion cannot be manufactured in of ourselves. Lord, we are unworthy sinners, dull in our minds, cold in our hearts, slow to obey. Lord, we need the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to move us to love you as you are worthy, to move us to cherish you as you are worthy. Lord, that your people would see you accurately in the Word of God and that it might move all of us to call you, uh, call you our own, call you our beloved. Lord, we thank you for opening our eyes and our hearts one day in the past where, we, where you awakened us to our own spiritual thirst and you blessed us by granting us the drink where we might drink of you and have a river of life, springs of living water, streams of living water flowing from within us whereby we are saved. In Jesus' name we pray.